Uh, we're turning our attention now to the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 15. This is the second to last week now in our study in Mark. Uh, we're coming to the end. And uh, today's text, Mark 15, 33 through 41, is, is a bit heavier. We're looking at uh, the death of Jesus um, leading into uh, next Sunday when we'll look at the resurrection. So this is page 853 if you have a red pew Bible in front of you. Again, Mark 15, 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, let's pray. God, we ask that you would um, speak to us, that we're going to go over quite a bit of information that um, can fill our intellect and help us to gain some knowledge, and we can even have um, some feelings that are happening within us that even convict us, but we are asking God for transformation for our lives to be changed. And so we ask of your hand in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, regardless of what someone believes in or about Jesus, there really isn't a debate about the events that uh, Pastor Steve just read about this morning and how it's changed the world. Um, so that being sort of a fact, it begs the question, how can a person from this poor family of ill repute, from a subpar education, from this really small town with no political power or military power, how can a person like that alter human history so drastically? Uh, another fact that we have to consider as we look into this is uh, just our journey through life, that we're all sojourners in this life, that we all have a birth date and all of us will have a expiration date. And that this journey uh, that we all go through, we can look at people throughout history, throughout human history, and, and kind of trace how they've influenced or changed the world. And when we look at Jesus, I can't think of anyone whose birth and their death is celebrated on such a global level and to the scale of Jesus, that believers worldwide celebrate the birth of Jesus and they also celebrate the death of Jesus as a sinless son of God who lovingly sacrificed himself, substituting himself on our behalf 
to put away our sins in order to reconcile us to God. And this story is our story as believers in Jesus. Last week we took a look at this question of who do you say Jesus is? And for us to consider if what he said is true in that is he the only atoning sacrifice for our sins? That the living God who died an atoning death and resurrected from the dead because there is no atonement outside of him. Now before we look at the scriptures for today's message, I'd like us just to go back a few verses in chapter 15 to verse 25 because that gives us the first uh, timestamp were given on this day that he was crucified, and it reads this, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Uh, the third hour is nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, Mark breaks these time stamps into three-hour intervals, as we're going to see. He's going to be talking about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So we read that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., and then at noon, there was this darkness over the whole land. Now, this is extremely unusual in this part of the world. I mean, it's closer to the equator. It's not on the polar caps. And so this darkness in the middle of the day is a very highly unlikely event. But we do read of it in other parts of the Bible, say Deuteronomy and Amos. And in those times of darkness, it's marked as God's displeasure or God's judgment uh, towards people. And so we're going to take a very clear, uh, very, uh, take a look at a very clear picture of this in Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus 10, it's the plague of darkness. So Exodus 10, starting in verse 21 is where it begins. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Now keep in mind that this plague of darkness is the second to the last plague. The very last plague is taking the life of the firstborn child uh, that God had judged upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And in that final plague, the only ones whose lives were spared were those who made a sacrifice of a Passover lamb. And the blood of that Passover lamb was to be put on the doorposts and the lintel of that entrance door so that the angel of the Lord would pass over and not kill who was inside. And so that was an impending judgment of death for those inside, and that Passover lamb's blood delivered them from that judgment. That plague of darkness was right before this plague of death. And that darkness was a sign of God's displeasure, a sign of God's judgment. So we come to our story here in Mark chapter 15, and we notice that there is complete darkness over the whole land. That this darkness precedes the judgment of God where we, like the ancient Israelites, can heed the words of God and accept the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who's on the cross, whose sacrificial blood is on the doorpost and on the lintel, on that cross, for Jesus to deliver us from judgment. When Jesus celebrated that Passover meal with his disciples, he spoke of the bread and the wine as symbols of his sacrifice. We can turn to this in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So 
Back to this picture of total darkness. This picture of total darkness before the Lamb of God being sacrificed is a very clear picture of God's deliverance of people from their sins, from their darkness. So we can look back to what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he saw Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And then it's this next three-hour increment, verse 34, Mark chapter 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with, cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the only words recorded coming from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The other Gospels do record some other words, but Mark only gives us this loud cry of Jesus at 3 p.m., which is a signature Markian type of way of writing because he tends to just kind of move through the story quickly, not a lot of frills with Mark. And Mark gives us this time frame telling us that Jesus experienced these six hours Uh, what he's experienced since the six hours of this brutality, torture, scourging from the Roman soldiers, that Jesus experienced a day of mental and psychological, emotional anguish. And after all the pain and all the suffering he experienced thus far, Jesus cried out in Aramaic what is written for us in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Aramaic was Jesus' heart language, his everyday language. Uh, Some of you who are multilingual understand this, uh, that when things are most raw for you, whether it's like a feeling of pain or anger, love, joy, happiness, sorrow, whatever that thing that really makes those raw emotions come out, that that heart language comes out. This happens for me when I get angry at my children. (laughs) I just, and then they're like, what, Dad, what did you say? I can't repeat it. I can't. (laughs) can't repeat what I just said to you, so just leave me alone right now. Remove yourself. But uh, yeah, are any of you who watch uh, TV Land, I Love Lucy, right? And uh, when Desi gets all cuckoo on Lucy, he goes into his Cubano Spanish and like goes all cuckoo. Like, you, you guys know what it is, especially you Latin people, right? You're so spicy. Anyway. <laughs> I can say that. I'm, I'm part Latino, so. Why did Jesus uh, cry this out at this moment? And it goes back to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, when Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So here's that moment where Jesus was about to drink the cup that he actually wanted removed from him. And he was about to enter that moment that he had never experienced ever in all of eternity. Jesus never experienced being forsaken by God. That's never happened. The Trinity has never experienced God forsaking God. And so this cry of abandonment and Hopefully you're getting a sense how, of how horrific sin is. See, it's not the physical, emotional, psychological pain that Jesus is crying out, from, out of from the cross. That's not the thing that drives him to do that. It's, it's that darkness, it's that heaviness of sin that causes him 
to cry out. It's the very thing that separates us from God that Jesus is crying out about. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. It brings us to the cross of Jesus. And there are many problems with sin and how it has harmed our relationships with one another. And there's the primary problem of sin in that it has severely harmed our relationship with God. It has severed our relationship with God. This loud cry from Jesus takes us to the core of our relationship with God. That our sin is horrifying. It separates us from the presence of God. That the only way to have victory over it is for God's only son to sacrifice himself to, to make things right. And that's the only way. That's how severe it is. And until we recognize who Jesus is, who Mark has told us is the Son of God from Mark 1.1, and what he did, which is save us from eternal separation from God, because our sin does that, we won't be able to grasp the severity of it. It, it just won't be that big of a deal. We'll just brush it off as morality. We'll just brush it off as a lifestyle. And we'll focus on other aspects within the Christian faith that can possibly be noble, but it simply isn't the gospel. Let's go back to Mark 15, starting in verse 35 here. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, we're not really sure if they were just curious about what would happen next or, or someone just had a little bit of compassion to offer Jesus a drink. We're just not sure about that. We can postulate about that. But what's, what's all this Elijah talk about here? What's, what's going on here? Well, there was this superstitious thought that Elijah was a prophet who would show up in, uh, during someone's uh, immense pain or someone's immense suffering and so perhaps it was a curiosity to see if this superstition actually came true. And maybe this act of compassion, of offering sour wine, would put them in this favorable light if Elijah showed up to take Jesus down from the cross. Now you notice that Jesus didn't refuse this. He did refuse the anesthetic before, but he does not refuse this jar of a sour wine or this sponge uh, that is different from the anesthetic. Now, it's believed that this jar of sour wine was for the Roman soldiers to drink as they were out there killing people and under the hot sun, and they just needed something to drink, and it was kind of something to quench their thirst. It was like a vinegary type of drink, so like kombucha. You know, it's like they're drinking kombucha. And, um, and that someone got permission to offer this drink from the Roman soldiers to Jesus. And so when someone had the guts to be like, hey, uh, Roman dude, don't bother me. We're casting lots and we're trying to see what we... I know, but can we just... Uh, there's like, we believe like Elijah's going to come down. And so can you just let us do this? We want to check this out. And so they're like, yeah, leave this alone. Go ahead, do it. And so he did it. Now, now John gives us a little bit more detail. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar, of, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Now, those of us um, who have been with a loved one in their last days, hours, know uh, what this is like. Uh, when your loved one is in hospice care and, you know, they, they take out the feeding tubes, uh, they remove that yellow plastic thing where they put water and ice and then they put a straw and then they allow you to feed it to your loved one. Uh, when it gets past that, then they give you that Dixie cup of ice chips. And uh, I've experienced this a few times myself and maybe some of you have as well, to where you start getting the ice chips and then you just start putting it around people's lips so that they can have a little bit of moisture and so it's not chapped and they can just be a little bit comfortable as they are dying. And maybe this was Jesus. Just that last bit of moisture um, so that he could say these last parting words, these loving words. And before we get to Jesus' last words on the cross, let's, let's think about verses 35 and 36 because it's actually quite sad. Here was this group of people who had this superstitious belief that Elijah was going to show up. If the superstition was true, what in the world do they think Elijah would say if he did show up? Good job, guy. Like, what, what, what were they thinking? And they must have had some sort of inclination to think that what they were doing was just not right. Because on either side of them were these two robbers, and they weren't offered the sour wine. And yet they offer it to the man in the middle. But there was something going on in them that had them thinking, maybe. So it's similar to what's happening in churches in that maybe they're there at the church out of superstition more so than religion or even more so than relationship. That the superstition is actually ruling their action and their attendance more so than a relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior who delivers them from their sin, this impending judgment for their sins. Jesus died on the cross because you and I are sinners, and without Jesus, we are eternally separated from God. So he's given this moisture, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now here's the other loud cry recorded by Mark, which Mark didn't record for us exactly what Jesus said, but maybe these last words were the ones that are recorded by the other gospel writers, maybe Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Maybe John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. We don't know, Mark doesn't tell us. But we do know that Jesus had to enter this pit of darkness, this hell, this eternal separation from God where he was forsaken by God. And so he himself had to enter that to overcome that because no one else could do that. No one else could overcome that eternal separation and be victorious over it. Now, it wasn't the physical act of crucifixion that saved us. A lot of times people are focusing on that, right? In any movie scene, they're focusing on that, whether it's Passion of the Christ or whatever it may be. There were, there were many who were crucified by Rome. And we know from historians that it sometimes took days for someone to die from crucifixion. That's why it was common 
to break the legs of those who were crucified because there was this metal stump that their, leg, their heels were on that allowed them to push themselves up to catch a breath. And so they'd break their legs so they, they could no longer push and so they'd die of asphyxiation just hanging from there. And so that's, that's what was happening there. Um, but do you see how odd this is? This whole death sequence is really, really odd because when someone's getting closer to death, they don't usually have something to say at the end. When someone is kind of on their deathbed and they're dying, usually they can't verbally communicate anymore and usually they need to communicate with their eyes or with blinking or something else. Right? I, I uh, remember uh, my grandmother dying on my paternal side and um, so my dad and I, we flew to China to be with her and um, for her last days. And so when we got there, um, my dad and I got to share the gospel with her uh, again, and she wasn't able to communicate with us verbally anymore. And so all we can say is, Grandma, a yes means one blink, uh, and two blinks is no, okay? And so she blinked once, and then we'd share the gospel with her and ask her, you know, do you believe Jesus Christ to be your savior? And she blinked once, and then she, she died the following day. But usually when someone is dying, they don't have this opportunity to kind of like say parting words and then be it. They kind of pass away without saying very much in those last days. But here we see that Jesus, rather than all those that have been crucified, struggling to get air and slowly suffocating to death, that Jesus actually cries out this loud cry and then he suddenly dies. And that actual event actually got the attention of the people there, including the centurion in verse 39, which we'll get to in a little bit. But Pilate is really surprised that Jesus died so soon. But in reading the scriptures, this really isn't a surprising thing to us. Take a look at John chapter 10, starting in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay, my, I lay down my life that I, my, <clears throat> that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have received authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus decided when to lay his life down. And he decided three days later when to take it up again. And he is in complete control the entire time. Since eternity when the plan was made for this redemption Jesus has been in control the entire time and so it wasn't in the plan for him to die the suffocating death where he couldn't say anything anymore it was more of I'm going to declare this and then I'm going to die and then you take a look at verse 38 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom now this curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 4 inches in depth. So needless to say, not something that um, a person can tear. And it's said that it took about 300 priests to manipulate this curtain. And so when we're reading this and, we, and we're reading that it was torn from top to bottom, this means that it's not something natural or physical because you'd have to climb up 60 feet and then tear it from there. And if you're going to tear it, you're probably going to tear it from the bottom and pull it that way.
but that's not the case. It says that it, it was done from top to bottom, meaning that it was done from above. God did it. God tore this curtain. Now, why is this even a significant thing to talk about or for Mark to even report? Because with the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God, that curtain was no longer needed. It was done. There was no separation between Holy of Holy, where they, Holy of Holies, where they believed God's presence to be from the rest of the temple. That Jesus died in our place, and the veil was no longer needed to, to separate that. That Jesus opened the gates of heaven to welcome all those who believe in him. Previously, Gentiles were never allowed to go in. No one was allowed to go in except for the high priest once a year that they'd tie a rope around his ankle and they'd put bells on his ankle and he'd walk in and, and then go into the Holy Holies and if they didn't hear a bell, then God killed him and they'd have to pull him out. And so as long as they heard the, the bell ringing, they were like, okay, the guy's alive. And so this veil is torn. It is no longer needed. That, that Jesus made it possible for everyone who believes in him to be in the presence of God. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." In verses 40 and 41, we'll see how many women stirred up one another to love and good works, didn't neglect meeting together, encouraged one another. But let's first take a look at this really fascinating character, the centurion in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This centurion is in charge of all the capital punishments, proceedings, proceedings, and what happened after with the body. He was the one who would answer to Pilate as to how things went, and we can read that in verses 44 and 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died, already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. This story of the centurion is arguably, that, that one line is arguably the climax of the Gospel of Mark, what the centurion said. Now, why is this? Because you look back to Mark 1.1, what does it read? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then Mark, for the next 15 chapters, presents Jesus' teachings, miracles, prophecies, his death. And after Jesus' death comes this declaration from the centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. Mark is presenting that Jesus Christ's mission was accomplished from Mark 1.1. 1, 1. 
that this Roman Gentile soldier recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, that the gospel message has been fulfilled. The good news has reached this centurion who has confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Now look at the posture, look at the, look at the, at the placement of the centurion who stood facing him. He witnessed everything that had happened. And this is a guy who has carried out multiple executions. Probably someone who's just become numb to this whole process that is really unaffected by death because he's just seen all of it. He's seen the many scourgings and torture, torturous ways. He's seen the beatings. He's seen the spitting. He's seen the insults being thrown at people. He's probably tuned all this stuff out. None of this probably even affects him anymore. But he's there to experience this and it starts with, at noon, darkness. This is something he's never experienced. It's dark in the middle of the day. And then this is someone who maybe it's jarred him a little bit. Because he's seen and heard everything that has happened. He's been involved in this whole party. He knows all the parties involved in this. And this is probably something that's part of his character. He's probably really good at reading people. He's a centurion. He has a ton of soldiers under his command. Anybody of this authority probably has a pretty good grasp of reading people. You know, when I moved into San Francisco, I I worked for this portfolio manager. Um, That's what I did for my job, and he was interviewing me. And uh, it was the craziest thing because I thought this guy was like a fortune teller or a prophet or something like that because he'd ask me a question and I'd answer and then he'd finish my story. I was like, what? Like, did you call my mom? Or like, well, how do, you, how do you know these things? And he did this over and over and over again. And then he told me, that's our job. We need to be able to tell when people are telling us the truth or a lie in order to invest in the company and you need, to be, you need to be able to finish their story accurately, and that'll make you a great investor. And so he did this, and, and he was just a really good character reader. He's able to do these things, and I envision someone of this authority and this power being able to do the same thing, that he can sense Jesus is the real deal. That guy up there is the real thing. These guys here are clowns. And he saw that in the way that Jesus breathed his last breath, what did he see? What did he see there? He saw a sudden death after a declaration. That does not work with crucifixion. That's not how people die. Crucifixion is meant to be a slow, torturous, agonizing, suffocating death. That at the very end of it, you don't say anything. You just breathe your last and it goes away. This is different. Jesus didn't waste away. Jesus' death was different. And he was aware all these religious leaders regarded Jesus as a phony. But this guy is really good at sniffing out phonies. They tried him as a blasphemer, which ultimately led him to the cross And the centurion knew these things. He's in charge of the execution. He heard all that happened. He knew that Jesus' followers deserted him. But he disagreed with those religious leaders. And he recognized Jesus as the Son of God. 
Mark is inviting readers of this gospel and the hearers of this gospels of this gospel to make the same declaration as the centurion. And over the last 15 chapters, Mark starts out with saying Jesus is the son of God 1:1 and he's pointed pointing to Jesus as the son of God here and showing, hey, the centurion got it, he declared it. How about you? Now, Jesus using the centurion, or God using the centurion to make this declaration is just part of the grace of God. It's really beautiful, actually. It's very, very characteristic of God. Why do I say this? Who were the first ones to receive the good news? Shepherds, right? The the least of these, bottom dwellers considered unclean. They could not go into temple to worship uh, unless they went through purification processes. Their testimonies were not allowed in courts of law. They were not thought to be credible people, bottom dwellers. And then you look at who he first showed himself to in the resurrection. Who was it? Women. Women who were thought of as the same way, Their testimonies were not allowed in the court of law because they were not thought to be credible witnesses. They were thought to be less than, no inheritance rights. That's why you have the story of Boaz and Ruth. You know, like they they had no rights to property if their husband died. That's why widows were destitute. Women were not looked upon favorably at all, not well regarded at all, yet who does God lift up? And who is the first one to, to declare that Jesus is the son of God? Gentile. Again, thought of as nobodies, thought of as unclean, do not, do not have relations with the Gentiles. Not only just a Gentile, an oppressor, the one who has been causing the Jewish people to suffer and oppressing them. That's who God chooses. That's who he lifts up. That's who he gives dignity to. Those that don't have it. Do you recognize Jesus as the Son of God? If you ever thought that you were less than, He's completely for you. If you have ever thought that you've been dishonored, devalued, haven't been given dignity, that's what God does. He lifts you up. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Again, very, very characteristic of God to highlight people who have been disregarded, seen as unimportant. And so first we saw the Gentile centurion in verse 39. Here we see women being highlighted in verses 40 and 41. Now Mark is very different from other gospel writers. Mark doesn't highlight women until here, the very end. Not unlike Luke. Luke kind of does it really early on. But Mark is making a point that, you know, women were there actually all along. Then... That, that's what, if you look at it, where are all the male followers? They're nowhere to be found here. But the, the women, they remained. And here we have a glimpse of Jesus' support group. 
Way back in the early days of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, it's referenced in verse 41. There were many women who followed and ministered to him. And this is an amazing piece of information because women weren't given any credibility back then. They weren't given any credit back then. And yet here, Mark is putting it to the forefront. Now, if you and I were to write a story that we wanted people to believe, don't we reference credible witnesses? Don't we interview people who have... uh, expertise in that subject matter. So if we wanted people to believe in a so-called religion, wouldn't we bring forward theologians and uh, philosophers and different deep thinkers who are well-regarded in the community, who have produced lots of work, who have done a lot of research, and then we'd cite them and then we'd give them and say, like, we need to believe them because they did all these things. But the Bible doesn't do that at all which is one of the proofs that the gospel is true, isn't it? Because the writers are just writing truth regardless of how people perceive it. They're not out there trying to manipulate somebody's information by saying like, oh, you need to listen to this professional or this philosopher or this theologian and then coming together and say, poof, here we have this. They're just saying truth is truth and we're recording as it is. This is just what happened. So it doesn't really matter if you feel a woman's not a credible witness or a Gentile or a shepherd or whoever else. It's just simply what happened, and so that's what we're going to put down. Now you jump over to verse 47, and you find that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. And then in 16, chapter 16, verse 1, it's Mary Magdalene, Mary, Mary the mother of James, Salome, who brought spices to go anoint Jesus. And then it was the women... Who, who entered the tomb in 16.5 that received the news from the angel that Jesus had risen from the angel. That's verse 6, meaning that they were the first to declare that news to the people. Then you jump into the book of Acts. You get into the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14. We find that the women were along with the men and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in this upper room devoting themselves to prayer and waiting for the Holy Spirit. And you continue on in Acts and into the early church. We find that it's the women who open their homes for the early followers of Jesus and support the, support the work of the ministry. Then you turn to the Paul's epistles, and you read there that it's multiple women who have these really critical roles in the early church. I bring all of this up because it's really, really important for us to affirm this, to understand this, that without these women, it would be impossible for the church to be where it was back then, where it is today, and where it will be tomorrow. And that this is our God, that whoever we feel is less than, he gives them value, he gives them dignity. He shows them that they're important, that they're to be honored. And so he shows a centurion, this Gentile oppressor. He shows the the women who were not looked upon favorably, but God gave them dignity and worth when others don't. And he entrusted them with good news. Maybe Maybe this is you. Maybe you feel that God can't use you because of who you are or what's happened to you or what you've done or what's been done to you or that you're limited in how God can use you for whatever reason that may be. Let me just close with 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, your good news is so full of hope that no matter where we find ourselves, uh, whether that's really far from you and not knowing at all who you are, like the centurion, or someone that has been a really faithful follower of you for years and has been part of your work for years, like these women we find here in, in your gospel, that you welcome those who are not given any dignity, that aren't valued, that people don't view as worth anything, and yet you bring them into this great family. I pray, God, that you would equip our church to be able to do this. I ask, God, that for anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, that even though they've gained some knowledge and maybe they've even felt a tinge of conviction, that they would take that step of faith, that it would move towards a transformed person. That, God, we have this idea that seeing is believing, but yet your gospel is calling us to believe and then we'll see. And so, God, would you grant that faith to them in Jesus' name. Amen.